Welcome back to episode nine of the South London Press Football Pod with myself, Richard Cawley and Edmund Brack. And we're going to start a little bit later recording this pod because um, we decided the best plan of action was to um, was to do it after the uh, the game last night at Sellers Park uh, between Crystal Palace and Brighton, which finished one apiece, a fairly regular scoreline at times actually at Sellers Park in terms of the draw. Um, but you were there, Ed, last night. You've had a bit of a cold, but you... Uh, you, you you kind of dug deep and you you got over to SC twenty five for the game. How are you uh, how are you feeling this morning, mate? Yeah, very well, thank you, Rich. I've passed the late fitness test, so uh, cleared it all with the medical team at the SLP. So I should be uh, fighting fit for this uh, the episode today. And in terms of this game, um, obviously you were there. I, I watched mm-hmm. it on um, I watched it on TV. I was interested this morning when I when I first before we sort of started this up that. Had a quick look at some of the stats around the game because obviously Brighton had a, a lot more of the ball, um, a lot more of the possession. But when you look at the, and I'm going to go back to expected goals here, the XG 1.35 or 1.35 for Palace, 1.19 for Brighton. It perhaps underlines that they had big moments in the game and, and certainly created more than their fair share of, of opportunities. Palace were very much in the contest. Um, scored just before half time with a with a great goal by Jordan Ayuk. Will Hughes capitalising on a, a mistake by Vart Brabrugan. Um, Michael Elise with a very delicate chip towards Ayuk inside the box, which he finished with a with a very good sort of aplomb. But um, in terms of chances overall, Brighton very much came out in the second half. Had a lot of the ball, creating opportunities around Palace's penalty area. The amount of blocks that Palace put in last ditch challenges just to nick the ball away from a Brighton player as they were looking to shoot. Kind of felt as the game wore on that Palace were very much sort of going to take this, going to finally end their their curse at home, their curse against Brighton, and and, and win a game for the first time in in uh, six. It's now been extended to, to seven after uh, Danny Welbeck finished with a, a sort of excellent header, which no keeper is going to get to. It, it actually rattled the crossbar. It was inch perfect. It was so good. But um, the the sort of key moment of the game hinges when Jean-Philippe Mateta dances past Lewis Dunk. I'm sat directly in front of it from the press box, sort of astonished as the way that he shifts his body from one way to another to lure the defender into a full sense of hopelessness that he's going to get the ball. Um, and then he plays through Abriciesa and he just can tell that he's not quite fit because... A fully fit Ebrich Yeze puts his foot through the ball and fires it past Verbruggen. Instead, he dwindles on it, takes a second, allows the defender to close in. And in the end, it's quite a, a tame shot that's easy for the keeper to save. Um, but there's another chance as well to, for Palace to really sort of clear clear their lines to seal the, the points, which leads to Brighton's equaliser. Again, comes Tereza, who sort of half attempts to clear the ball away from a from across into the area, um, lands to Pascal Gross, who obviously puts in the, the excellent cross for Welbeck to finish. And uh, the points have to be shared. It's a bit like Groundhog Day between Crystal Palace and Brighton at the moment. It seems like every every game ends in in one all, no matter no matter what happens. I think my, one of my thoughts on the game was that, particularly in the first half, Michael Elise saw so much of the ball. I mean, some of the stuff he does is just sublime. Mm. There was one flick where he flicked it over his marker. He's just so good on the ball. I thought second half he he got caught in possession a few times or didn't quite get the passes right. And you mentioned about the Eze moment as well. So I guess the problem is when you look at it, some some fans I noticed were sort of talking about the fact that 
Palace didn't manage to complete finish out the game and kind of finish it the way they wanted to. But it's, it's, it's harder said than done when they still haven't got loads of options, have they? And Brighton obviously did have options off the bench to kind of affect it. I mean, it, it seemed like the players were quite happy with the point. I mean, Dean Henderson got booked late on for time-wasting, didn't he? So um, I'm assuming that they kind of viewed it as a point game but once we got into the sort of latter stages of the match. Yeah, <clears throat> probably. I, I think Dean Henderson was was actually wincing when he was taking his goal kicks. I don't know whether that's to do with his quad injury. I think um, he's had some sort of illness during the week. So potentially that's why he he took a little bit of a, <clears throat> a few seconds with his with his goal kicks. But um, in terms of a, a point gained, I think whenever you're leading in the Premier League, I think you're probably hoping that you see the, the performance out, the result. I actually think the telling difference again, and and it's been the telling difference for a few times for Crystal Palace this season against opposition where they can't quite either A, see out the performance or get a result, is with what happened with Bournemouth the other week. Bournemouth had the ability to take three of their star players off, bring on three more key players who were able to see out the job. Brighton were able to bring on similar calibre of players to come on and change the sort of style of play, the formation, the system, whatever it might have been to to get back into the game. You know, bringing on Danny Welbeck, who is an excellent sort of finisher in the Premier League, has pedigree, experience. When Jean-Philippe Mateta went down with cramp with around 15 minutes to go and Palace was still 1-0 up, there was no striker available to come on and, and to replace him. Um, and that's the sort of telling difference for Crystal Palace this mo- at, at this moment in time, especially this season. The squad depth isn't there. Sorry, go on. I was going to ask you, do, were you surprised that, that Francia didn't come on um, or, or not? I mean, obviously, again, I only saw the clips of a couple of his moments up against Kyle Walker mm-hmm. against Man City, but it looked like there were some real moments that, you know, you sort of look and think, wow, there's there's a little bit about why Palace went out and spent the money they did on him. Were you surprised? I mean, am I right in saying Roy only made two changes? He made Ozo on and, and Eze. Yeah, yeah, it was just Ozo and Eze. Um, in terms of the changes, I think he made them because Jordan Ayew is, is, was one booking away from being suspended for the Chelsea game. And obviously, Palace have just lost him to a red card anyway, so they don't want to lose him again. Um, Will Hughes was also in a booking in the way that Brighton pop it around, especially in the centre of the pitch. You're always likely for your midfielder to, to probably pick up another yellow card. So I think that's why Hodgson made those two changes and he actually explained it in his post-match where he actually said he didn't think that the substitutions helped Crystal Palace a lot, which um, sort of an omission of, of where maybe the points went away from them yesterday. But in terms of Francia, um, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. If you, if you bring a kid on at the Etihad when you're 2-1 down, chasing the game and in the ascendancy, it's probably more likely to have a little bit of an impact because you're going to have a little bit more of the ball. You're going to be attacking the opposition who are going to be on the back foot. But when you're trying to secure a, an almost one nil lead, or or try and get trying to get a second um, at home to your arch sort of rivals, you don't really want a kid who's who's barely played ninety minutes coming on to try and see out the game. Maybe um, also Hodgson had the ability to call upon Everett Jeze from the bench, and there is a clear pecking order in terms of if if you're going to call someone from the bench, it's going to be Everett Jeze, not Mateus Francia. But I actually think Eze was the wrong call yesterday. I think he. Um, you know, he's going to win. Crystal, he's won Crystal Palace already in abundance of points during his time at Selhurst Park. But I think he was at fault for for the game slipping away yesterday. He had the chance to kill it off at two 0 It was his clearance that led to Danny Welbeck's header. So it's clear. In, it, I was thinking about it yesterday. I think he's rushed himself back from injury a little bit quicker than 
expected. Um, he obviously missed a chunk of the season through that hamstring injury after the Manchester United win. And I think subconsciously in his mind, he's maybe coming back a little bit sooner because he wants to be back in the England squad, back in Gareth Southgate's sort of plans ahead of the Euros in the summer. And he's perhaps maybe just come back a bit too sooner and he's led to, you know, he, I think he was a bit sore after the game against Manchester City on Saturday. Maybe his training was slightly impacted at the start of this week. He's come into this game on Thursday only against Brighton. This isn't a weekend game. He's not quite there. He's a little bit off the pace. His decision-making, sort of half-attempted passes, half-attempted clearances. Um, yeah, I, I don't want this to be, be some, sort of a battering of Everett Chiesa, but maybe the medical staff could have taken sort of precedent in terms of their decision-making, thinking that they said he was could be out. <clears throat> Apologies. <clears throat> they said he could have been out for the whole of sort of December and, he, and he's rushed himself back a little bit and Palace have sort of paid the price for that yesterday. I've got, I'm going to put you horribly on the spot now. I'm going to ask you a question <laughs> and just test your test your knowledge. It's something that I would fail miserably at, so I'm not I'm not expecting anything. I've sent a low bar, Ed. But Jordan Ayew became only the sixth, you might know this already, became only the sixth Crystal Palace player to hit 20 goals in the Premier League for Palace. Do you know... Who would you have a stab at as being the others? Oh, that is a tough one. I've really tough. put you on the spot. You weren't expecting that. So yeah. this is the sort of thing that my brain completely freezes and I'm like, okay. my mind's gone completely blank. Obviously, Wilfred Zaha is one. That's one. Um, Christian Benteke. Christian Benteke is two. Luka Milivojevic. Oh, yeah. You got it. That's three. Um, three more to go. 20 goals. 20 goals. That is tough. Um, okay. is Eze? Eze? No, Eze's not on there. I don't know how many he's got, no. but he's not on there. Do you want me to tell you the last two or do you want to have another stand? Would you, would you be able to give me a clue? Oh, is Dwight Gale oh. one? No, Dwight Gale's not one. Oh. I think there's one that um, Palace fans often sing the song about him, actually, when they play Brighton. Oh. He wears a magic hat. He is before my era, so I hope yeah. people let me off for this one. Andy Johnson, I yeah. am incredibly he young. Crept, so he, Yeah, he clipped him on 21. And when you say you're yeah. incredibly young, the other player is even further back and well before your uh, time as well. Is it, is it Chris Armstrong? It is Chris Armstrong. So okay. there we go. You uh, you managed to get there. That was that was decent, considering, as you say, <laughs> you're just a, a young buck and I'm an, and yeah. I'm an old man. So, uh, yeah, put you on the spot there. Well done. So just looking ahead to uh, the Christmas period, um, you know, as you say, without a win in seven, um, you know, Roy Hodgson sort of said that well, Palace are getting stronger as you go along, but you... You now go into the Chelsea game and I guess a lot depends on what Chelsea do at Wolves on Christmas Eve. If they can get a good result there off the back of winning against Newcastle in the in the uh, EFL Cup, then they're, they're, they're kind of going into that game with a bit of bit of confidence behind them. But you've obviously... What, what are you kind of expecting from, from that one, Ed? For me, the Chelsea game, um, it's not really one I'm looking at in terms of picking up points. Obviously, they're, they're not the, the force to be reckoned with that they used to be, but they're still a, a massive football club in terms of Roy Hodgson. We're thinking we, we have no sort of divine, we as in Crystal Palace, have no divine right to go there and, and to pick up points in the Premier League, although you you will be thinking with potentially the second time only this season that Everett Chiesa and Michael Elise can start a Premier League game together. You will be thinking that there is a chance of taking something. The game for me, which I think is kind of, becoming a little bit more crucial in terms of 
Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace and the feeling around the club heading into the second half of the season is this Brentford game. Um, Palace have only won four times at home in 2023, and that's across Patrick Vieira and, and Roy Hodgson's reign. Selhurst Park is, is not the fortress it used to be. Uh, the teams are coming there, picking up points, rolling over Palace a, li- a little bit too easily for, for their liking. So that Brentford game on the 30th, um, you know, what would that that'd be only one win in eight then by that point and if if it what if it, uh, if it's sorry zero wins in eight and then if it becomes zero wins in nine that's not great reading I think Patrick Vieira was sacked for something along those sorts of, of stats so I'm not in for one way suggesting that Roy Hodgson should lose his job because the performances against Liverpool Manchester City and and yesterday were actually very positive and it's very clear that this man has not lost the dressing room whatsoever for confidence reasons Palace just need to pick up that that win to make sure that they're not truly in and around it heading into the second half of the season because Everton have already caught up with their minus 10 point deduction. Luton look like they they have the wherewithal to, to do something in this division. Um, Nottingham Forest have sacked their manager Steve Cooper so then that makes it a little bit more interesting in terms of he's obviously won Palace of admired in the past. Um, he's one that potentially nearly got the job when Patrick Vieira got the job so um, there's just a few narratives around it where you're thinking that Brentford game is is one where Palace need to start picking up points again in the Premier League. Uh, join us again in part two where we're going to uh, move on to Millwall. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod. Uh, we're going to touch on Millwall, Rich. Obviously a bit of positive news down at the den at the start of this week. Uh, well, towards the end of the week with Highly rated youngster Idemo Amaku signing a new deal. How much of a positive is this for for Joe Edwards and, and Millwall Football Club? Yeah, it's a positive. There's no doubt about that. It obviously hasn't been all sort of um, sweetness and light at um, Millwall, you know, in, in recent weeks, and that's only really because of the fact they haven't managed to get the results that they would have they would have wanted. So um, I think any bit of positivity needs to be kind of seized upon and. Um, this is a good bit of news for for Millwall. Um, Idemo Marku came in last January. Well, I think he arrived slightly before, but officially become a Millwall player in in January of of uh, this year. And um, he signed from Shamrock Rovers. He was very much seen as a kind of um, a, a project. A kind of, I mean, obviously clubs do this all the time. I don't think the transfer fee was particularly high. The gains, obviously, if he does well, are that A, he impacts your team and B, you could end up selling him on for, for quite a lot of money. And of the young players that have been involved at Millwall this season, Idemo's been the one that has delivered the most. We can touch on Romain Essay in a minute because I know some of the fans perhaps not totally happy that Romain hasn't played more football this season. But I'd say that Idemo, and I, I asked Joe Edwards this and he said completely that was the case. The reason why... Idemo's had more game time is I think some of his attributes, you know, he's quick, he's direct, he can run with the ball, you know, he can beat a man for pace. And so it's probably easier sometimes for him to be sort of um, dropped into matches to see what he can do and impact matches. He's had a couple of big moments this season already, terrific run and cross for Romain Essay's goal at Middlesbrough on the opening day of the season. He scored a superb goal at Norwich, which they were losing 3-0 at the time. And so it didn't really get the kind of merit and, and focus it deserved. Um, and since then, he's been the one that's played matches. So this is 
I think this contract's a kind of a, a little bit of a it's a bump up in salary. It's a reward for what he's done. And Millwall, in the meantime, are also protecting an asset rather than letting his contract sort of run closer to to expiring. So it's good news. Um, as I said, I touched on the main essay. There's a, a lot of fans who who weren't who have been saying about the fact that he wasn't involved last weekend. If you look at it, he he hasn't really played a lot of football at all. I mean, I did I did actually tweet his minutes this season. And um, I'm just going to have a look. He's played 277 minutes of championship football, um, 31 of those minutes since the end of October. But I think one of the things is, is that I think Remain SA needs to, um, I think the defensive side of the game is so important. And we've talked about this probably before, you know, managers want to trust players. And I think it's not just about what they can do on the ball. So maybe that's what's needed. I mean, if he's not playing, he's got to then kind of deliver more in training. He's got to deliver more in any kind of under-21 games he plays. And um, going back to uh, both youngsters, Idamo and Romain Essa, they both played for the 21s at the start of the week. They beat Cardiff 5-1. Essay scored one goal and, and Marcus scored a hat-trick. So they're kind of doing the right kind of thing. I'm sure, particularly with Idamo, we'll definitely see him involved in these Christmas matches uh, because Millwall need goals. Joe Edwards has said yeah. it himself. They need to start scoring. And if, even if you've got a player that's done it at under-21 level, he's going to get opportunities, I think, over this over this Christmas period. In terms of Idamo, did he play senior football at Shamrock before coming over? Because you can tell when... You can tell when a youngster, when they come into the squads, it's the same at Wimbledon. When a youngster comes in on loan, you can tell straight away when they've got that experience. And that's probably maybe why he's a little bit ahead in the pecking order. Yeah, he did. I mean, he, he played he played matches for Shamrock. He played European games for Shamrock as well. So, yeah, he definitely had that kind of experience and he'd, he'd had that involvement. Um, I do think, I think that's a valid point completely. I think just as well, like the main essay hasn't, the games that I've seen, he's not got that kind of, pace that he's going to beat you like that he's more of a player that's got the quality on the ball I mean everything you hear is that he's one of the most talented if not the most naturally talented player that Millwall have got in their squad but obviously there's got to be a work ethic that runs alongside that to a degree not completely with a flair player but to some degree for them to kind of get that run in the team and you can't afford players not to do the defensive side of the work if they can't do the physicality side of it. To, a, to a, People will look at the main essay maybe as, a, sorry, Eberetche Eze as an example of a player that had a lot of talent that maybe Millwall didn't maximise the potential of. There's absolutely no way that Millwall want that to happen with the main essay. Um, I mean, there have been a few conspiracy theories with some of the fans that um, that, that the main essay was going to be sold um, in January and the reason why he wasn't playing was because Millwall were going to sell him. I mean, I actually asked Joe Edwards about this and it's in the paper today. He said there's been absolutely no discussions with him about Remain SA going anywhere. So I think it's a natural thing that, you know, supporters speculate why a player's not involved. I've got to say, in the games I've seen so far, um, I've said this before, Remain probably hasn't produced a level of performance where you would say that, why is he not playing? Yeah. One of the arguments the other way is that people have said that people like Alan Campbell and Ryan Longman haven't contributed enough. So I think the point they, they're saying is if they've not contributed enough, why are they still getting minutes when we've got young homegrown players that we can play? Of course, 
as we know, Ryan Longman and Alan Campbell have both played quite a lot of matches. So maybe it's some of the off the ball stuff that we don't see that gives them the trust element with the manager. But yeah. the young players can only really get that awareness and capability of playing championship games by playing matches. So it's a double-edged sword, really. Yeah. In terms of SA not being sold, was that in terms of loan as well? So a loan deal would, would yeah, probably be off the anything, cards as well. Yeah, I don't think there's anything like that. I don't think they'll I don't okay. think they'll loan him either. So I think I think it's a non starter. I think he'll end up he'll end up staying. Um I, I'm sure that he's not happy with the amount of game time that he's had, and nor should he be. Um but um it's down to him to kind of affect that change because Certainly last season, he looked an exciting town. There's no doubt he's a good player. And, and Millwall need to harness it as well. It's important for Millwall to harness it. I mean, Joe Edwards said at the weekend, and he referenced it again um, when I spoke to him earlier this week, that um, when they were winning at Sheffield Wednesday, Bill, like what you're talking about in terms of bringing players on like Francia when you're um, chasing the game at City and there's no pressure, so you're attacking more. Joe Edwards made the point, the very first sub he made as head coach was Romain SA. He brought him on at Sheffield Wednesday. But obviously in that game, Millwall were comfortably winning and it was a different match to come into. Yeah. Um, I did the interviews for the paper this week, speaking to, to Billy Mitchell and to Duncan Watmore. The overwhelming sort of sense that I got from them asking about this upcoming game against Stoke is that this is a massive game for Millwall in making sure that they're, they're another one of our clubs who aren't on a particularly great run of form. Um, I don't know whether it's us or or just the way the football season's panning out, but um, this is a huge game, isn't it, Rich, for you know Stoke with a new manager, Stephen Schumacher, who they've they've plucked from Plymouth, uh, a league rival. Um, it, it's massive that Mill will get back to some form of sort of winning ways because they believe, when I was speaking to Billy Mitchell and Duncan Watmore, both the sort of messages they were sending across was that this is very close to turning for Millwall, that it's just about all clicking in the right places. Yeah, I mean, last weekend against Huddersfield, I was at that game and it was crushing for the players. Mm. I mean, you know, you're 1-0 up. You're looking like you're finally, finally going to end a very overdue win at the Den. And then, you know, a shot from the edge of the box and George Saville instinctively brings his hand up and it's a handball. And um, I was watching the footage back and when the penalty goes in, uh, Saville sort of just leans forward and he's got his hands on his knee and he just stays there staring down at the turf and at the end of the game he, I mentioned it on social media and I put it in a couple of pieces but Saville at full time was down on his haunches on the turf and Joe Bryan went over to him Andy Myers went over to him they both kind of tried to pick him up and console him but he kind of instantly after being picked up sort of dropped back down again and you could just tell that I think there was a picture that Brian Brian Tonks took of Ryan Leonard and he's walking down the tunnel and he's just got his hands on his head. I mean, it was, you know, these are big, big moments in the games and, you know, it's, it's tight down there. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that um, if you look at the league table, if, if Millwall hadn't won, um, you know, at Sheffield Wednesday in Joe's first game in charge, um, you know, league table wise, they're going to be in trouble. You know, they're going to be right in the mix and they're already just above it in terms of that bottom three. Um, the one thing that maybe helps them, I don't know if it helps them or not, but if you look at if you look at Millwall being on the road, maybe that's no bad thing. You know, they didn't play too badly at, um, at Leicester City at all because their home form, I mean, they are bottom of the league in terms of their home record. Um, nine points from 11 games. 
quick QPR, who they play on Boxing Day at the Den, are on nine points as well, but they've only played 10 matches. Huddersfield yeah. have got 11 points. Rotherham and Swansea have got 11. So this home form is a real, real issue for them. And so maybe going to Stoke is not the worst scenario in the world. Albeit, like you said, the big problem they've got is that Stephen Schumacher has now gone in there to Stoke. You would imagine that that would kind of get some kind of reaction from the players, much as it did when Joe first went in at Millwall for that first game in particular. So it becomes a trickier game. Then you've got QPR on Boxing Day. These are two big, big matches because I think for a few different reasons, it, it looks like it could be a grind for Millwall this season. But when you get to the January window, the better position you're in, the easier it is to normally attract players. And um, so they really don't want to be heading into January in the bottom three, um, yeah. which is a possibility, particularly, obviously, with the QPR game. In terms of questions and, and for Millwall this week, uh, Frankie would like to know how many players Millwall are, are looking at bringing in in, in January. Now, obviously, that's quite a, a general question, <laughs> a bit vague as well. But in terms of where you, what areas perhaps maybe you think they're looking at, is there anything you can shed some light on uh, Shed some light on for the listeners? Yeah, I think I, I don't think there'll be loads of deals done. And I don't know if fans think there will be, like, you know, real frenzied activity in this window. I think there's a few different reasons for that. I think the first reason is that clubs obviously always work to a budget. And, you know, I think I'm probably right in saying that when Gary Rowett was manager and he had the last window, they pretty much spent their budget. Uh, you know, they went to where they wanted to go to with players. And so the idea that there's just this infinite amount of money to spend and that you can just do stuff, I don't think it really works that way at all. Um, so, like, I, the, the other issue they've got, funnily enough, someone asked them um, on Joe's Zine press conference, um, they asked him about Zian Fleming and are you do you fear that with Millwall's league position that the, the big boys, the big dogs will come and take him? And it was a question that was probably a bit surprising because, as an example, I think Zian Fleming, after multiple bids from Burnley in the summer, um, I think you've got to be honest and say that the way that Zian's performed this season, uh, I think he's got four goals, um, got 15 last year. I just don't really see that there's going to be bids for players in Millwall's squad. And Joe Edwards kind of almost answered it that way. He said it would be nice if there were bids because it would show that you've got players that are performing. But he almost indicated himself that he didn't expect that with Zian and I think probably generally with the squad. So you haven't got that movement there that you possibly would have. And that's what Millwall need. They probably need a bit of movement out as well. Um, I'm not sure what the loan situation is with Ryan Longman and Alan Campbell, but uh, and I've not heard they're going to be going back. But maybe if there is a break clause in that, it gives some manoeuvrability to, to do a couple of other deals in. Again, they probably would be loan deals. And then it's kind of whether other players, something curveball comes up and you can get some players out. So really to sort of reiterate my point, I don't think there'll be loads. But I also think that because of the way that Millwall have performed this season, I don't think that any position is safe because, you know, bar probably the goalkeeping situation, I can't see them doing another goalkeeper. I think the thing that they might look at is adding something else in midfield. You know, Casper de Norbian out has underlined how badly they miss him. Yes, he'll be back mid-January, but I personally think that I wouldn't be surprised at all if you see another midfielder come in because I think they'll want... I think one of the things Joe Edwards wants is more control of games. 
and I think he's struggling to get that at the moment with the current setup. I'm Zion Fleming, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pod. Charlton Athletic, Rich, um, a big interview with Andy Scott in this week's paper. Um, what did the Charlton technical director have to say ahead of the January transfer window on the on the horizon? Obviously, uh, a lot of sort of housekeeping maybe with the squad in terms of injuries, contracts, players needing to move out, lots of topics to sort of touch on at this present time. Yeah, a few different things that cropped up this week, obviously, for Charlton. Um, you touched on housekeeping. One of the bits of housekeeping was Charlie Kirk. Um, his contract was terminated by mutual consent. Anyone that listened to the pod last week would have heard that we um, we, we sort of broke that um, story effectively by saying that he was close to an agreement. Um, so that's a bit of housekeeping. That's a that's a player that Charlie Kirk still had a deal until 2025. So he still had um, significant time on that contract. I think there's sometimes a bit of confusion with these things. I saw a few people saying things like, oh, this isn't great for Charlie Kirk before Christmas. And, you know, the reality is that when you get a termination, very, very rarely will it not involve that person getting their money. You know, you come to an agreement, so he's been paid some of the remainder of his contract. So it's not like he's been cast out the door and the contract's just been torn up. It doesn't work that way at all. Um, It'd be interesting to see where he goes. I think... One of the things that was interesting when Charlie Kirk first signed was there was a fair bit of noise that he made. I mean, he, he, his father had passed away over that period, which obviously is uh, uh, incredibly sad news. Um, but like at the time, there was a feeling and there was noise that Charlie Kirk wasn't massively keen on a move to London. I think he was probably fairly settled where he was. But the way it was mentioned to me was that the deal was so good that Charlton put on the table that you've got to take it and then once you're on that deal, you're on that deal. And then in the future, you can move back up north. Um, obviously, Charlton paid half a million pounds for him from crew. Um, so his salary would have been significant. And it did kind of work out that way that Charlie Kirk never settled. I'm not saying for one minute that he just didn't try or anything, but it just didn't work out. And similar situation with Deal and Giacini. You know, he's on loan, um, got, got sent off this week um, up in Scotland. And again, a player they spent a lot of money on from Swindon. Um, he is out of contract at the end of the season. So these players are historic signings that the club have had to work around. Um, and so Charlie Kirk going obviously frees up some money on the wage bill, which is a good thing. Um, in terms of um, the loans as well, Jameson Bankwa is going back to Udinese. Um, Andy Scott mentioned to me in the interview I did with him this week that he's picked up an injury that's going to keep him out for a while. And so he's going to go back. I mean, the fact he's injured doesn't really matter to Charlton in the sense that he barely featured. So that's a signing that's not worked out. He goes back as well. So there's a couple of bits of housekeeping there. In terms of other bits, um, there was a, uh, you get this all the time in sort of around windows and things like that. But some some person on Twitter was saying that Corey Blackett-Taylor was about to sign his new deal or he'd agreed it. And people jump on this stuff and I get it. But, I mean, the person, there's been so many times this happens where people don't seem to have any real connection to anything and they just throw it out there. And sometimes it can be right, but more often than not, it's wrong. And it it is wrong. Um, Andy Scott said this week that, um, you know, neither neither Corey Blackett-Taylor or George Dobson are close to signing new deals. Um, 
he thinks that Corey is just going to wait and see. Um, we've said before that Derby like him, that there's interest from abroad. I think there'll be some championship clubs that might even think, is he worth it as a maybe a free or at the end of the season? Um, and so there's no update on him. Uh, and also George Dobson, Andy Scott has said, has been the subject of two contract offers. And on the second one, he's Andy Scott saying that George Dobson's agent hasn't come back. So he feels again that George Dobson will, George Dobson's representatives and George Dobson will kind of see what's out there in January and just, you know, get a feel for what kind of offers might be out there. So that's where they're at with those. Um, in terms of the transfer window itself, um, again, of what Andy Scott said, he's saying that the owners are ready and willing to invest. And so they're looking ideally at permanent signings, not not loans unless they kind of have to go down, not have to go down that route. But if a, like a really good loan comes up, they would look at it. But they want permanent signings that can help build the squad for longer. So, you know, I think some of the Charlton fans, when I look at some of the reaction to the story this morning, some of them are saying, well, those are, those are words. Let's see what the actions are. Other people saying we've been here before. We've heard that we're going to do this, this and this. So I think there's a fair bit of um, supporters feel like they've, they've, they've heard some of this before. But this is the first proper full transfer window that they've had, really, the new guys coming in. Because when you look at that last window, they had to work in conjunction with Thomas Sangard. So it wasn't, they, they could have control, but it wasn't total control. Um, yeah. So that, you know, it'd be interesting to see where they go this window in terms of what they do. There's actually quite a few questions this week from multiple Charleston fans asking about business in, in January. But from what Andy Scott's saying, it, these owners are sort of ready to invest, but they need to be the right signings, permanent signings, players who have the robustness to play you know, however many games are left in the season, 20 or so, week in, week out in League One, and, and so almost fire, a bit like Alfie Mays doing, a, a permanent player to come in and really make a difference in terms of trying to get this team into the playoff spots in the in the final few weeks of the season. Yeah, I think a lot of the fans were hoping that with the news that Patrick Bauer was made available uh, on loan from Preston, that he might be one that would come back. But the, the message kind of coming back was that um, while there's plenty of respect for Patrick Bauer and, you know, awareness that he can be a, or was a very good player for Charlton, I think if you look at his playing record in recent times, he hasn't played a lot of football. And I think the one thing that Charlton's upper echelons of the club are saying, and it sounds obvious, is that you want your players on the pitch. And so they're saying that the the injury history and the injury record has to be right to bring a player in. So like you've got you want a player that hasn't got those issues hanging over them. Um I think it, you know, so so Patrick Bauer is not going to be a player that's going to be coming back um in the January transfer window, much as many Charlton fans might hope he would be. I think the key thing is, I think they need they, they need strengthening all over the park, but obviously um, up front is going to be a real, real priority for them. Because the form is good, you know, like I, I was I was looking at it and I hadn't really, re- I don't know what it sounds bad, but I hadn't realised, but I think they've only lost two league games under Michael Appleton since he's come in. And you look at the last couple of games, they've had a... Uh, a penalty awarded for a foul outside the box that cost them the win against Cambridge. And against Barnsley, I don't know if you've seen it, Ed, but basically in the lead-up to the goal, the ball goes out over the line by the corner flag. The officials don't spot it. The ball then comes across and they score from it, Barnsley. Now, 
Yeah. Obviously, Corey Blackett-Taylor scores for Charlton in that game as well. But if you win those two matches, that puts you on... That puts Charlton, I think I'm right in saying, they're on 28 points. So if a match is right, they move to 32. They're then not so far off the playoffs. You know, they're... Um, Bolton have played 20 games and, you know, you would, you'd be seven points behind of them. In, instead, you know, Bolton are on 39 and, and Cheltenham are on 28, albeit they've got games in hand in some of those teams. So, but this is this is going to be key. I mean, they look like they It'd be interesting to see. I think the owners need to kind of work on the basis that it might not happen this year for them because it well could well not happen for them. So, that's why it's important. I think they do get the deals right. I mean, um, Andy Scott, I asked him as well about Michael Appleton's comments about, you know, the transfer windows needed to be a million percent better. And, and and Andy kind of touched on the fact that some of the deals they did out, like Stockley and O'Connell helped bring in May, Alfie May um, and Lloyd-Jones. Um, and he said that there have been some successes. He admitted there have been mistakes made, but he said that's been the case for a number of windows going back, like five or four or five years. So, um I think there is a determination to get it right. And Charlton will be judged on their deals as we see who comes through the door. I don't think anyone's saying it's definitely going to work out, but there seems to be an intent there. And I think, you know, some of the housekeeping we've talked about, like the Charlie Kirk thing, like bringing in, um, looking to bring in an individual performance coach. Um, they've had rounds of interviews on that. And, you know, we've, we've got other people coming, other key positions being filled. It does look like they're trying to do some of that background work and, and make things more stable so that they can achieve something. Yeah. In terms of the relationship between Scott and Appleton, a brave call getting rid of Dean Holden so early on in, in the League One campaign. But mentioning the form there under Appleton, you said only potentially two defeats. Unbeaten in five, heading up to, to Burton this weekend or hosting Burton. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. They're playing Burton, I know that for sure. Yeah, hosting um, Burton, yeah. Hosting Burton, right. Um, Charlton aren't a million miles away from, from being in and around it at the moment. I know that Derby's win last night moved it to 11 points, but there's a lot of games left to be played and uh, Appleton seems to be getting the best, along with Alfie May's scintillating form, seems to be getting the best out of some of these players in the squad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, another thing I asked was, I mean, no one's said anything to me that there was anything going on, but Alfie May's goal scoring, you, you asked the question, what would happen if someone came in for him in, in January? And um, Andy Scott was emphatic. He said, we're building something here. And the one thing you don't do is you don't sell your best players. So he said, Alfie May's going nowhere. So uh, I think it would take a pretty head-turning offer for, for, for that to happen. But... Um, I think, yeah, I, like I say, I think the form's been good. I mean, they've drawn too many games of late. The, uh, Andy Scott, again, said he was impressed with the way that Michael Appleton works. He likes the way he is with the players. He likes the clear plan he has in terms of his prep for games. So there seems to be satisfaction at the way it's gone. There's just been a few too many draws probably dotted in there. But, you know, Saturday's a big one, I think, because I think they need to get a win, really, to, to really kind of push themselves up the table ahead of two games away at Leighton Orient on Boxing Day, Bristol Rovers on the Friday, and then they're home to Oxford, who obviously have been up there pretty much from the start of the season. So there's some difficult games there. They need to, they've just got to keep themselves in the mix. Um, and if they can, try and get deals done as quickly as possible, because there are some areas where the squad is light. And like I said, the obvious one is up front. 
I think if they could bring in a real quality striker at this level, that would be massive for them. Yeah. Uh, Crystal Palace youngster Jack Wells Morrison has been linked with with Charlton today. Well, it's been sort of rumoured that he's Charlton have had a sort of loan offer rebuff him. I don't know whether you'd know anything on that, but a, a 19-year-old midfielder on loan doesn't quite sound like maybe the sort of route that Charlton are probably looking to go down. I, no, I haven't heard it because you, you mentioned it to me this morning. We sort, yeah. we sort of been up and then recorded the pod. But what what kind of midfielder? What position does he play? Um, he's basically Louis Watson. So I I'm, I wouldn't suggest that that's probably a, another player that Charleston needs. No, well, Louis Watson. Um, the situation and obviously it would depend probably on if Louis Watson went back. But as you say, it'd be almost like for night. But yeah. um, you know, he's triggered. I think the amount of games he had to play that they can't naturally just be. He can't be sort of recalled or sent back. Uh, Charlton are perfectly happy with him. Uh, on Louis Watson's side, I think that it's not cut and dry these days in the sense that I think if he doesn't get, I think like his people, Louis Watson himself, will be looking to see what kind of time he gets over the Christmas period on the pitch. I think if he doesn't get a lot of time on the pitch, I don't think it's out of the question that Louis Watson does end up going back um, and, and ending his loan. But it's not necessarily what you would think as a potential player signing. It's, it's not one that would spring to mind. It also mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily sound like what Charlton want to do, ideally, which is that they want to try and get permanent signings in. So, I mean, obviously we, we'll, we'll, we'll check it out from our side, but I, I'd be a little bit surprised if that was the case. I'm Jay Cooper, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to the final part of the South London Press Football Pod, and we're going to talk about AFC Wimbledon, who are in action tonight at uh, Crawley Town, just down the road from me, Edmund. But I, um, I've got um, alternative plans this evening. So I would not be able to make the short journey across um, to uh, to Crawley, unfortunately, to see this one. But they're going well, Wimbledon, sort of firmly in the pack, aren't they? And they had a, a confidence booster. I say confidence booster if they need it, but like I suppose it all helps. Uh, a, a good win at Portsmouth in the EFL Trophy on midweek. It is, yeah. Uh, I think it's remarkable that Johnny Jackson can make sort of 10 changes to the team that drew 0-0 at Salford um, on Saturday. Head to the League One champions, well, champions in waiting. They're, they're, they've been excellent under Jean Messina, haven't they? I think they've only lost, is it one or one or two games since he's come in as coach from his playing career at Oxford? Um, they can head to Fratton Park and pretty much pick them off in the first 30 minutes and the game be done. Um, Harry Pell scoring a free kick. You're leaving Ali Alhamidi out of the, the starting squad, even though he's off to the Asia Cup in the not-too-distant future. There's a lot to like about this AFC Wimbledon team. I've said it said it before. I think the main thing is consistency. Feels like they found that form again. Um, obviously, going well in the league, an impressive result against Notts County. Um, yeah, the, the, the main challenge will be, A, keeping hold of, of Ali Alhamidi at the start of January. No matter what happens, he will be missing for a period of the the month due to the Asia Cup. Um, also, uh, there's a key sort of game coming up over the festive period. The game which set the tone for AFC Wimbledon season last year was against Sutton. They went on a 10-game winning run. Well, a 10-game unbeaten run, I should say. Uh, felt like a winning run. Um, when they played Sutton at home, they lost 1-0 and it completely transformed the season. They got to January, played Sutton on, on New Year's Day, lost 1-0 broke the run, all of the loanies left, Ayubasar was sold, 
it was the changing point in the season. This year, they're playing Tusson on Boxing Day. Um, could close the gap between themselves and the rest of the teams in that sort of playoff, which is probably the goal for Wimbledon over this festive period. Maybe a few disappointments that they didn't quite kill off the game against Salford. Had a couple of good chances. Alhamidi going close again. Um, so they go into this festive period with a lot of confidence, but that Sutton game could be crucial. Obviously, they've just sacked their manager, Matt Gray. He's been there for, for ages. Um, so they're going to be on a, a sort of fact-finding mission themselves, trying to find out what sort of team they are, whether they're going to be in and around the bottom. Obviously, Forrest Green have just brought in Troy Deeney as their manager as well. So all change in terms of the bottom of League Two. But in terms of Wimbledon and, and this squad, the Mick Buckley did his sort of update of the year heading towards the end of 2023 and into the January transfer window. And he reiterated what Johnny Jackson told us in the paper the week before. The plan is to keep this core group of players together. Um, they're obviously at the sort of mercy of their the parent clubs in terms of Sunderland with Alex Bass and Stockport and Joe Lewis and, and uh, Connor Evans. But as Jackson told us, the, the sort of all the indications they're getting is that the trio will be there for the season. Um, Bronan Curtis was training with Wimbledon at the start of the week and the week prior after he left Portsmouth. But the sort of information I was getting was that he was just there under the sort of uh, guise of, of the physio, Bobby Backett, who was at Portsmouth the season before. Admiral, ex-Millwall physio, came to Wimbledon in the summer. He just obviously knows a lot about Curtis, was just watching him. But you never know in terms of football, if a player gets a feel for a place, if a player likes it, he's obviously a Londoner. Um, had his fair share of injury problems. So you'd be sort of a coup if, if Wimbledon did manage to get him to co- convince him to sign. But you never know in football, stranger things have happened. But he, uh, I think he was played a trial game for Wickham during the week. So uh, whether he's still there or not is yet to be seen. I saw footage of Alex Pierce's goal celebration, which I really <laughs> enjoyed. Um, it reminded me a bit of, um, off the top of my head, I probably guess wrong, I think it was Brighton he scored against in the FA Cup. And he did yeah. sort of knee, high knees as he runs along. It was kind of, Similar to that, always used to enjoy Alex Pierce um, when he used to come did, out for his warm-ups at Millwall. He used to do the sort of the Icelandic thunderclap. He, I'm guessing, he still does it where he runs out and he does this really wide sort of clapping and sort of scoops <laughs> slightly forward. The players, Alex Pierce, such a popular player when he was at Millwall. He didn't play yeah. all the time, but the players absolutely loved him and like perfect captain material. You know, I remember Jeb Wallace used to be in Stitches. You know, he was a character, Alex Pierce, And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing his celebration this week. I get the sense it's the absolute same at Wimbledon. <clears throat> he leads out the team every single time for the warm-up. He does the clap. All the players are laughing at him. I imagine he sets the tone and the sort of standards and example for what some of the younger players especially can follow. Um yeah, he doesn't play all the time because Ryan Johnson and Joe Lewis have been so formidable at the back. But when Alex Pierce does come in, I think I remember he made something ridiculous last season. It was like 18 clearances during the game and his, he must have had a headache or something afterwards because he gets his head onto absolutely everything. But um, a very sort of imposing figure within the squad is, is probably setting the example. I imagine Jackson probably sees a little bit of, in terms of where he's got that sort of captain's mentality from when he was at Charlton, in terms of Jake Reeves and Alex Pierce, those two sort of setting the standards, he probably couldn't have asked for much more in terms of his squad. In terms of punditry duty, Jacko was at the Palace game we saw him the other night. He's been he's been out and about, hasn't he, watching other matches. <laughs> I'm guessing he's not scouting players. There wouldn't be too many at Palace Brighton you'd be able to get down to Wimbledon. 
maybe not from the starting lineup. There are probably a few from the uh, sort of academy that, that I'm surprised Wimbledon don't utilise the sort of links with Crystal Palace more in terms of, I think I looked at it over the summer. Have Wimbledon ever had a player from Palace on loan? I don't think they have. Not springs to mind. There might no. be, but not springs to mind. Um, obviously, they've had ex-Palace players, Tom King, Kieran Jalali, um, Crazy Empire, yeah. yeah, players like that. But they've never really utilised the sort of loan deals in terms of bringing players down from an academy that's not a million miles away. And Palace have a lot of fantastic sort of youngsters in and around the ranks. Just, um, yeah, it's strange, like yeah. you say. I mean, when you look at someone like... Um, Jez, Jez and Raksaki going to Charlton and one of the reasons they felt it was perfect was because of that kind of family support network and that he was still going to be in the area. It wasn't a massive change for him. There must be other players at Palace you would think that Palace might look at and say, like, for this player, it doesn't suit them to go suddenly somewhere completely different. Wimbledon yeah. would be perfect. It, it seems yeah. like they're missing a trick a little bit there. You wonder with the uh, chief scout Andy Thorne, obviously that's Crystal Palace centre back and Wimbledon as well. But obviously Craig Cope's the sort of main decision maker in terms of head of football operations with the, the signing the players, bring them in, the scouting and all that. But yeah, there's a, there's probably some some good youngsters you could develop um, Wimbledon squad in terms of Adamola Ola Adabomi, the the striker who won November's uh, Premier League Two Player of the Month for November. Wimbledon fans, I know. Have, have been on to me before saying would any chance we could get him um Wimbledon would they need a striker only if Al Hamidi left because you couldn't necessarily guarantee a, a youngster game time with Omar Bagel, Josh Davison and Ali Al Hamidi all in the mix. These are experienced players who know how to find the back of the net in League Two. Uh, I think Ola Adabomi looks set for a League One loan. Um who that is we probably can't quite say yet, but there there's a there's a club in League One who are very keen on, on bringing him in. So um yeah Stay tuned for, well, keep an eye on the website for, for sort of more information on that as, as it moves along. Just not to get people too excited, Charlton fans. We no. Not Charlton, is it? <laughs> it's not Charlton, you know, no. That will probably appear and people will be like, that could be us. So it's not Charlton. But, no, um, not Charlton, no. Okay, well, we're going to wrap up episode nine of the South London Press Football Pod. We hope you all have a lovely and wonderful Christmas. Uh, Rich, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Edmund. You did well. Late night last night, under the weather, but you get the job done. It's uh, it's part of the mantra of South London press sport. We're made of steely stuff. We're yeah, no shrinking violets in sport. But no, Merry Christmas, everyone. Everyone that listens, thank you. What I'd say again, always, we don't always get loads of... If people want to give their thoughts on things, it doesn't just need to be us uh, giving our opinion. If, if, if people have... If you've got a thought on your club or a player and you want a kind of us to include it in the pod, you know, just add it to us and ask us to put it in or when we ask for any kind of topics or talking points or opinions. And yeah, you know, and we'll look probably moving forward. We're going to, we've had a few guests. We haven't had guests in recent weeks. We'll look to either get some guests or, or do some specials where we maybe get one person on and a bit more of an in-depth chat with them. So we've got, we've got a few plans, haven't we? And we'll, we'll see what we get to.